There are things that happen in our lives that are battles, and then there are building moments. So there's battle moments and building moments. Does anybody in here know the difference between a king and a warlord? A warlord is someone who can't seem to figure out how to rule and build a civilization. All they know how to do is conquer civilizations, but they don't know how to run one. So they stay in a perpetual motion of war. They win. They win battles, but they're nothing more than battle winners. They are never kings. Kings can win a battle and then build a nation. They can build a kingdom, and we have to become kingdom builders. We have to be people that know how to not just get through a battle and say, well, I won a battle. But what do you do with that victory? What do you do with that land once it's been given to you? How do you build on that? I have, I have nine acres. We have all kinds of things that we want to do with our nine acres. Well, right now it's just overgrown grass. A lot of it is overgrown grass. And I have all these visions for things that I want to put on my, oh, we're going to do this, and then eventually we'll do this. And we have all these plans because I'm not just interested in taking the land. I'm interested in building the land and making it into something that's worth holding on to. Amen? What does it matter if you win if you're never going to do anything with the spoils of your victory? So if you don't know how to build something, if you don't know how to build God's kingdom in your life, what does it matter if you beat Satan this week? I beat the temptation. I beat the struggle. But you don't do anything with that victory. You just let that victory take you into another fight. And so it's always a loop of constant destruction and win, destruction and win, right? Every one of you have been through that thing. I don't have to be prophetic to tell you every one of you have been through that struggle. You know why? Because you're here right now. Because you're still alive. And every one of you have been through a battle. You either just came out of one, you're about to go into one, or you're in one right now. That's how it works, right? So if we just constantly are like, whoa, break from the battle, I'm going to rest. And then, ooh, I'm in the battle, i got to fight. Then we never built. Then we never built. So we have to learn how to build. And worship is a great foundation that builds in our lives. Worship is a great way to build in our lives. In Matthew 6, 9, verse 9 says this. This, then, is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus set a model of prayer that teaches us something profound about kingdom building. He says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there is a significance to what you do here on earth should mirror the kingdom of heaven. You should be bringing the kingdom of heaven here and building what has been established in heaven here on the earth. Let, let me put that in perspective. In heaven, there's no tears. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no poverty. Those are kingdom principles of heaven that we should be constantly pulling down here and building here. Does that mean we're ever going to have a pain-free life or a sorrowful life? That we're never going to have anything we're upset about? Everything's going to go right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we should be perpetually adding brick after brick and building the kingdom of heaven and lessening the kingdom of this world, which is death, destruction, 
lack, limitation, and building the kingdom of God, which is abundance, joy, and peace, and love. Those should be the things that we are building here on earth. And Jesus said it that way. Let the things in heaven be built here. And he said this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think Jesus wanted to leave us a clue. And I think the word of God led us a clue that maybe we don't fully understand what, how it is that we can build a kingdom. So I want to give you a really, really crazy idea. I want to suggest to you that the key or the, the first thing that kind of initiates See, this is when you don't want to say stuff because people are like, you crazy. Okay? So I'm going to say something and just give me a chance, okay? If you're watching on the internet, don't just click off the live stream. All right? Give me a chance. I promise I'm right. Okay? I promise I'm right. But I believe that sex might be the cornerstone of it to building the kingdom of God on earth to a lasting and sustaining kingdom of God on earth. Does that sound a little crazy? How, come on, you can be honest with me, right? Oh, he lost it now. He got like way, he got way too much Christmas chocolate. The dude has lost his mind. He's on a sugar high. He doesn't even know, he's, he came out of a sugar coma. He doesn't even know his first name no more. Okay. Don't make me have to come back on you for heckling. So, uh, sex. What the heck is this pastor talking about this morning? Right? What do, what do pastors know about that anyways? That's ridiculous. They're not human. They're all eunuchs. That's how they were born. All the kids in the room are like, I don't understand. Uh, all right, so look, let, let me explain what I'm talking about, okay? I, I promise I'm going somewhere, but my mind is blown, so I think that you guys are about to have a revelation that's just incredible. So there was a British social scientist named uh, J.D. Unwin, okay? And he was a non-Christian. He had no uh, stake in Christianity versus non-Christianity. In fact, you might say that he went the other way against Christianity most of the time, all right? And he conducted this massive study, okay? And he wrote a book called Sex and Culture, and he studied six well-known uh, civilizations and 80 lesser societies covering 5,000 years of history in order to understand how sexual behavior affects the rise and the fall of social groups. Okay, so how nations were affected by, their, by, by sex, by this term, okay? And uh, Unwin's study included every social group which you could find actual reliable information. So most of the major big civilizations that you can think on, and I'll name some of those in a second, but like Rome and, and Babylon and some of the bigger uh, social groups through 5,000 years of history. And what he did was he actually was setting out, uh, expecting to find evidence supporting Sigmund Freud's theory that civilizations are essentially neurotic and destroy themselves by restricting sex too much. That was Freud's theory. Okay, so Freud believed, I'll get to that, but what actually happened to Unwin is that when he set out to prove Freud's theory, he was surprised that all the evidence that he discovered pointed exactly the other way. So Freud used to think that civilizations was unstable, that was 
uh, perhaps this notion was uh, self-defeating. So that once he actually wrote to Albert Einstein, saying that he feared that limiting sex, uh, the civilization may perhaps lead to the extinction of the human race. Freud especially feared total sexual abstinence outside of monogamous marriage. Okay? Some restrictions might be tolerable, but total abstinence, except within marriage, Freud said was dangerous. Does that, does that sound like a society you've ever heard of? Does that, does that resemble anything you hear anywhere else? That that's ridiculous and ludicrous and we're a modern culture and we're a modern society? And, and, and to, you know, uh, I remember my father, when I first wanted to get married, uh, he said, you know, he asked us if, you know, have you done the deed, right? And uh, I'm like, no. I'm, like, I'm saving myself for marriage. I'm a Christian. And he's like, oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, he's look, let me give you some wisdom and some advice. If you've met my father, you know how this is going. All right, so uh, <laughs> here's some wisdom and advice. I say it to his face too, so I'm not talking behind his back. Uh, you know, he goes, let me give you some wisdom and advice. You got to go try that out first because if you're not compatible, that's going to lead to a, a lot of problems. Like you need to go make sure you're compatible. And that's the world's wisdom on the subject of sex. That's the world's wisdom. So you got to go see if you're compatible. So Freud believed exactly that theory. Like, it's fine to get married and then be abstinent. That's, I mean, with that person monogamously, but you should not be restricting yourself before and after. you got to know what you're doing going in, okay? So, now, Freud wasn't a social scientist and never proved his theory, but he did think someone should try to do it. So Unwin took up this challenge to prove it. So he accepted Freud's challenge, setting out to study how sexual morality affects civilization, and especially whether... Uh, Freud was right about the restricting of sex in monogamous marriage and threatening the survival of societies, right? Man, we, we can't be, we can't be waiting for marriage. We're going to destroy our society. Like, we got to know that, right? Hey, I'm just trying to keep the nation. I'm just trying to keep the nation. I love my country. You know, it's just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just selfless. I'm just trying to help the nation. I'm just serving the country. Come on, you know there's like a lot of 20-year-olds out there going, yeah, that's right, that's right, come on, preach, right? There's some teenagers in here going, I hope he's right. I hope he's like, that's not a joke. But they're not going to say it because their parents are within smack shot. And there's been a few times in church, man, where I was like, Psh. you know, I just said something. They're like, that's you. Psh. I don't look up at those moments. I'm just, whatever. Camera's pointed at me. There's no evidence. I don't know what happened. Uh... So what he did was he, he actually did find strong evidence linking the cultural condition of a society in any geographical environment with its past and present methods of regulating the relationship between sexes, okay? But rather than being uh, injured by restricting sex to marriage, Unwin found in every case, say every case, every case, that they expended all their energy from the social group when they did not restrict sex. But when uh, sex was restricted to just marriage, the nation flourished. But when it was unrestricted, the immediate case of cultural decline set in. Let me, let me say this. Immediate. 
Cultures that had lasted thousands, hundreds of years, some thousands. Cultures that had lasted. Empires that were on the, they were the, no, they, were the they were the best. They were the best. They were always winning, okay? Um, they immediately went into decline within three generations of being loose on their sexual preferences. So he came to this pattern over and over again. A society would begin with high standards limiting sex to one partner in marriage for life. This produced greater social strength and the society culture would flourish. Then the new generation would arise and demand sex on easier terms and would lower their moral standards. But when that happened, the society would lose vitality, grow weak, and then die. And in most cases, they would grow so weak that they would just get conquered by an outside invading army. So what was once considered the greatest pinnacle of a nation would then be reduced and conquered. And what Unwin found was it always, every single time, correlated to their position on sex. In fact, so much so that the nations that would would have a strong monogamous belief system and then get away from that. Their society would begin to decline rapidly over the next three generations. And if the society turned the corner in their morality and began to have monogamous relationships again and, and practice abstinence, the nation would go from decline to thriving once again. Every single time. So only the nations. So he found... You could say that that was a symptom of other moral issues. Except when the shift was to return to monogamy, the nation would thrive. So it sounds like God's word knew a little something, something about something, something, didn't he? So total monogamy was the only civilizations in history that have ever survived and thrived. In fact, when he studied other relationships, so he studied several but in particular ones that were loose on premarital and then ones that were strict on, on, on no sex before marriage and then polygamy and then, uh, you know, outright do whatever you want kind of societies. So he studied all of them. And what he found is, is that those that restricted it to one man, one woman, single uh, for life were the most healthy, the most thriving cultures in the world, okay? And that th those nations that restricted it inside of a marriage covenant but allowed polygamy, Okay, so uh, you could have more than one wife and there was polygamy, but it was, but it was locked in there. They found that that nation didn't die, but it remained in uh, nothingness. It remained stagnant. Okay, it stayed in stagnancy. So when he studied cultures that had allowed uh, polygamy, they didn't die, but they didn't thrive. They just stayed there. And so they became antiquated and outdated. So when they studied like Arabs, for example, we wonder why some of these third world nations have stayed third world and they've never evolved past that. Well, they believe in polygamy. And so they, all their energy has been uh, uh, moving towards that. And so they've created nothing new. So I know we think that capitalism is the, the, what spawned all of the greatness. And capitalism had a role to play in it. But it was actually our moral fiber that allowed us an opportunity to grow. Why? So I'm going to get to the reason why this is. You know, why God made this a rule, where the scientific principle is, okay? Um, so every society that abandoned monogamy lasted about another three generations or about 100 years. Every time. 
do you realize where we're at as a nation? We had a sexual revolution, right? Where it was all free love. And that generation has raised a generation that now no longer values marriage. Not in the way we used to. That now no longer sees it as important, as valuable. And look, I'm not condemning anybody that has done anything. That's not what this is. This is just a principle for our society to work. And it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, this is a shifting moment. This is a shifting moment. Where you change your ideology for the rest of your life so you can understand that God's word is there to protect you, not to limit you. So, every single time within 100 years. So we're talking about what? Another 40 or 50 years we have? Unless we make a shift in our society that understands this principle left in our society. Now, we still value marriage. Marriage statistics are, are holding pretty steady, but those that are engaging in marriage are becoming less and less. So we, we've held pretty close to a standard of divorce rates in our country, except for Oklahoma. If you didn't know, Oklahoma has three times the national average divorce. Okay? In fact, I was reading some statistics on things to stay away from in order to keep your marriage healthy. Okay? And one of those was stay away from red states that are Protestants. So we're Christians. It's the truth, right? The more, while we don't subscribe to being a Pharisee, the Pharisees wouldn't have allowed divorce. Right? Us Christians who have grace... And mercy, we're just like, oh, I got grace and mercy, right? I'm not condemning anyone. Please, I'm just trying to teach you something that in God's word that will allow us to move forward, not uh, condemn you for your past, okay? Right? It, it, so just to throw myself under the bus for a second, if you guys don't know this, me and where, Rachel just uh, uh, celebrated our 20-year wedding anniversary. Yeah, you can clap. Come on. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Two of which we were divorced. Okay? We got divorced. So I'm right in there with y'all. All right? So don't, so don't think that I'm, I'm condemning anyone. I'm just trying to teach you something about God's word so that we can build on it. Because if we can get this cornerstone, we can go beyond this. And I'm not teaching this on Christmas. That'd be weird. Uh, right? Especially since Mary didn't understand anything about this subject. You didn't laugh the first time I said it this morning. There we go. All right, so, so let's talk about the perversion of sex in our country. So now we've gone from just being able to, to do whatever we want or, or to be with multiple partners to this pervasive idea of porn in, in, in America. Okay, this idea that porn now has taken over uh, many people's lives completely. All right, and I know this is a taboo subject, but it should not be a taboo subject. And we're going to undo the taboo about it, all right? The porn industry actually makes more money than ABC, CBS, NBC combined. It makes more money than Netflix every year. Okay? So you're like, man, I watch a lot of Netflix. How's that problem? Okay? 50%, over 50% of all internet searches are porn. Half. Half. Do you think this might be a problem? Over 50% of those that are polled say that porn is a benefit to their life. Yes, it benefits them greatly. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 64%. I wonder what percentage just refused to answer the question or lied. Come on. Right? 
You know someone like, uh-uh, I'm not admitting to that. So 64 admitted it. How much is the real number? One in seven senior pastors admitted they watch porn once a month. One in seven. One in five youth pastors. They got a little more maturing to do. You got, you got two senior pastors. By the time they got there, figured out that's bad. Okay? So why am I talking about this? Okay, so we talked about mirroring neurons. Do you remember that? When we talked about these neurons, that when we see something, it's like we did it ourselves. Our neurons have no distinctive difference between seeing something and doing something. And so we've created these mirror neurons that when we watch these things, we actually feel like we've done them. In fact, we have dopamine responses and other chemical responses that trigger a reward system in our brain that says you're rewarded like you actually did it. And it, and it comes with zero rejection. Look, women, let me tell you something, okay? I just want you to understand because there is a big difference here. Women get caught up in this too, but let me say something to you. This does not make your husband or any other man a sicko. This is a society problem that has grabbed hold. And it's harder to beat than alcoholism and cocaine. Okay? It doesn't make them sickos. You have to understand that by the time a boy is 12, his friends at school have already exposed him to porn, and they talk about it openly. 55%, excuse me, 96% of young adults have showed it and discussed it openly with their friends as if it's no big deal. Okay, so if you have anyone over 12 and they tell you they've never seen anything like that and they go to public schools, they're lying to you because it's awkward to talk about. I'm just, that's the truth. Okay? And I've had an open policy with my kids. Come tell me about it. Don't let me find out about it. Don't let me find out you've been doing something wrong. That's been the policy in my home for as long as it's been. If I find out you've been doing something, you didn't come talk to me, oh, dad's coming out. But if you want a pastor, come to me. Come and say, hey, dad, I have an issue. I need a pastor, and I promise there'll be no wrath from me. And that holds up in every area. It's not just this subject. Every subject in my home, if they come to me and talk to me about it, there's a different reaction. But if I catch you, you guys have been waiting for a couple weeks for me to kapow-pow-pow-pow. Right? I ain't kapowing on toys anymore. I made three of you. All of you don't have to make it through to adulthood. <laughs> so what, we found, what researchers found, let me teach you a little science. What researchers found out is that you, you create these neural pathways in your brain. Every time you do something, there is a neuron or a neural pathway that connects from what you do to there, okay? When I'm learning to play guitar, I play a chord. And then I practice the chord and I practice the chord. And pretty soon it becomes, what do we call it? muscle memory. It's actually not muscle memory. It's neuron memory. It's neural pathway memory where your brain has created a network, a path to get from there to there quickly because it realizes that's going to be important. So the more you train something, the easier it is, the, the less you have to think about it to get it done. You create a wider pathway. It's kind of like walking through the woods. When you walk through a trail in the woods, the more often that trail is walked, what happens? The trail gets bigger. Okay? And so it's easier to get through. And then pretty soon you can get cars through there and transportation. So the bigger the pathway, and that's what neuropathways do. I'm just making the science simple for you. Um, and porn is actually one of the strongest neuropathway creators that they've found. It actually competes against every other thing in your brain to create pathways. And it fights and it takes up space that's unused. Okay, so understand, 
if you are watching that, you are, what you're doing is you're erasing other neural pathways and competing for space in your brain. So it's kind of like a hard disk. If you know how a hard drive works, the older hard drives, not the new ones, but the older hard drives, when you delete something on your computer, it's actually not deleted. It's just been set aside to be able to be overwritten. And until new data comes and writes over it, it's still there. But when new data shows up, it's allowed to override it. It no longer has the ability to stay on top. It has to be overwritten. And porn is actually a strong way that deletes things out of your brain and overwrites over other healthy things. It takes away your brain space. In fact, most people that are addicted to that kind of stuff find that they spend all of their time obsessing over it. And it begins to take over to an addiction level where nothing else matters. Not their wife, not their family, not their jobs. Right? Come on. I mean, seriously, can you imagine sitting at work all day watching that? Right? I mean, if you work at the government, that's what they do. Yeah. Most government employees, most government employees have spent hours and hours every month watching porn on their computers. Okay? That's just a reality. So they can't even do their jobs because they're so addicted to this thing. And it creates these neural pathways. So whatever you do continually over and over again creates a pathway that says this is easy and this is do it. This is why it brings down societies. This is why it brings down societies. Because you spend all of your social energy trying to get something that should not be available to you. So all of the social energy of a society was now geared towards I can go get this that's gratifying, satisfying, and I like it. It's a beautiful gift that God gave us. It's the only thing, I think, if we're honest, it's the only thing in our entire lives that you can do thousands and thousands and thousands of times and never hate it and never get bored, right? If I fed you the same food every single day, how long until you're like, oh, I hate this, I'm so sick of this, right? But not this. God has given us a gift, like something beautiful. But when it's used incorrectly, what, what happens is a young man or a young woman starts to chase after that. When you realize that it's not available until marriage, when you realize that, you don't chase after that. What you do is you chase after the opportunity to get, it, to, get to it once. Okay? If you realize you have to get a spouse, a mate, in order to do that, see, what happens is, is you start to have a beautiful exchange where it's no longer about just hooking up, right? Which doesn't require a lot of effort on either part if it's free. There's no value to it. So it's quickly exchanged. And then because it's addictive or because it opens up the strongest neural pathways, you'll chase it all the time. So you're not worried about a career. You're not worried about inventing things. You're not worried about moving your society forward. You're looking to satisfy your flesh. And that's the next thing. Come on, some of you know some people that that's all they think about, right? They spend all the time just trying to look right so they can, catch, they can hook up. Like that's what they do. So there is no bettering themselves or bettering society. But when you take that out of the equation and you say, hey, in order to, to have that available to you, you have to get a spouse. You have to get a mate. You have to attract someone. You have to sell them on yourself. You have to spend time with them. You have to invest in them. And they have to pick you. They have to choose you. And they're not going to choose easy because they only get one. They only get one. So they're not going to choose easy. So what do you have to do? See, a woman, uh, in, in this relationship, what a woman does is a woman... Ch trades her chastity for protection and provision. She's looking for someone who can protect and provide, right? Someone who can protect the family. And a man is focused on providing and protecting. 
in becoming something that a woman would say, now there's someone that I can invest my life into that will protect and provide. I was talking to Susan this week, and she says, man, I've talked to a lot of men, and, and I've told them, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I like you. And she's like, you have nothing to offer. You have no job, no career, no opportunity. You're a bum, for better words, right? You're a bum. You have nothing to offer. And they look at her, and she, because we were talking about this, and she looked at me like a deer in the headlight. But men don't think like that. She's like, they're not thinking about protecting and providing. I was like, that's because we've already turned this corner. As a nation, we've turned this corner. Where we've given ourselves over to lustful desires of the flesh, and we no longer see value in protecting and providing. We're no longer trying to raise ourselves up so that we can attract the best mate possible, right? The, 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 the wealthier you are, the more established you are, the better looking you are. You know, all the characteristics, the nicer you are, the better of a father. Right, come on, ladies. We, you, your, your judgment is not he's good looking, but when he holds that baby, right? And he's like, oh, hey, no baby. You're like, oh, he's so nice and he loves babies, right? <laughs> and that's why you're doing so well. Ah, uh, so... They're, you're looking for someone that is a life partner. But if sex is, is not off the table before marriage, then you're not, your standards start to come down. Your standards come down. And then what you're doing is obsessing over that, and the society begins to obsess over that. Look, let me tell you what. Any time that you have a society that is accepting and gratifying the flesh, you have a recipe for destruction. Caesar said this. When Rome was in trouble and it was flooded under debt and it was crumbling underneath them, they came to him and they said, they're going to riot. They're going to begin to riot because our nation is crumbling. And he said, give them bread and give them games. As long as their bellies are full and they're entertained, as long as you meet the gratification, and they'd already given themselves long over to sex. So as long as you meet their fleshly gratification, they will allow the nation to crumble with applause and smiles. So sex was the one that shifted the nation into that with Rome. That's what shifted it. When they got away from monogamy. Okay, and we, we've as a nation have entered that moment. Let me just be clear. We have entered that moment. We had a sexual revolution that was about monogamy. That's what it was. In the 60s, it was nothing. It was about monogamy. I don't need your religion, and I don't need your marriage. Right? It was a, a rebellion against religious doctrine that held them in, you know, the strict doctrine. Right? Let me, let me tell you something. Have you ever seen an animal society crumble because they mate too much and reproduce? Don't we have to control populations sometimes? Because mating causes their population to increase. Yet with every single human society, free mating led to the disaster and destruction of a nation. I've never, you know, I've never heard a scientist once say, oh, we've got to stop these seals. We've got to stop these seals from mating because they're just going to go extinct. So it only applies to the human race. This is a distinctive thing that only applies to the human race. See, God distinctively set us apart when, during creation. He didn't create the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and said, now, let them come together as one. He didn't say that, but when he made man and woman, he said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In fact, in the Jewish culture, it was not a marriage ceremony that made you married. In the Jewish culture, it was the act of consummation. It was that act that made you married. Even if you didn't go through a wedding ceremony, if you did that, you were considered married. 
And then if you did that wrongfully, when, you, when it was found out, the father had the choice to allow you to now be married and you had to pay a bridal price. That was their culture. And you had to pay a bridal price, a dowry, in order to, to, to have that wife. Or the father could then reject you as a husband at that moment. But if the father didn't reject you, just the act of having sex made you married in their culture. You were already married. You were one flesh. So it is not a marriage ceremony that makes you one flesh. It's not standing up here and having the, the put the ring on and all that. It's this act. God set this apart and said this is something special. It is understanding that two becoming one flesh is a very powerful spiritual principle that brings unity unity into people's lives. And being in union with the wrong people can bring destruction to your life. What you surround yourself with, you'll surrender to. And so you cannot be in unity. You cannot be equally yoked with someone who is not right for you. You've entered into a covenant with them. And it brings destruction on your life. This was a principle that God held true. Because man was one. And a rib was taken. And that rib was formed into woman. And when they came back together, his body was complete. He was whole again. You cannot go and be complete with someone that was not intended for you. They're not your rib. Okay, man? They're not your rib. You don't fit there, ladies. That's not where you were intended to be. And being there brings destruction on your life. So we've entered into this society now that everything's free. Everything's, there's no whole bar. There's no, there's no rules to it. Look, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying that what history shows and what his research showed, it's like a 600-page research book, okay? It's ridiculous. Uh, I've been reading about sex all week, and that's weird, okay? Okay? It's very weird. So, so what his research showed is that that led to other sexual perversions that entered the society and helped escalate the breakdown. We, in fact, the most healthy... Uh, Societies he found were called rationalistic societies who valued monogamy. Rationalistic means they valued, they had deities, they had religious belief systems, but they loved uh, thought, okay? They valued pr progress, okay, the Renaissance era. But the biggest one was the Anglo-Saxons, the explosion of England that happened because of strict monogamy. And they, because now, because they weren't worried about that or chasing that or trying to obtain that, in marriage, it was available. All their energy went to something else. All their energy went to creation. Okay, when, when you get your focus off of the creator and put it on creation, if it's wrong, you're going to bring destruction. But if it's right, you're going to build up a nation. But when your eyes are on the creator, you can build the kingdom of God. You can build the kingdom of God. So now we have this society that is... I, I don't even know what to call it. I'm just going to be honest with you. What do we even call it? I looked, and, and I was looking up the, this idea of gender. If you guys haven't heard this, Facebook had changed their gender from male and female, and they added 51 different genders that you could choose from. And that got a lot of backlash from nonspecific gender people who were mad that there was only 51 instead of the 700 and something there is. Did you know that? That there's like... I, and you know what? Someone on the internet right now is like, that's wrong. There's 1,330. Like, there's a new gender added every, every day, like pretty much. It's crazy. A gender and this gender and that gender and every There's so many gender. Genders that are not genders. Genders that are switching genders between genders based on the day and how they feel about their gender. That day versus tomorrow. Okay? 
So shifting gender. There's gender, every gender. So what Facebook did is they took down the 51, and they have male, female, other, and you can insert and type what your gender is. Okay? Let me explain to you. Look, I'm not judging anybody. Please don't take me wrong. I'm not judging anybody. What I am telling you is the hard facts about society and why that is destructive to a society. Here's the reason. We now have men who say that they're women competing in women's sports. We have girls who now no longer are able to win. There's been dozens of professional sports where men have dominated and hurt other women because they're it doesn't matter how they feel inside, they have the muscles of a man. It does not matter if they say, I feel pretty, okay? I feel pretty, so pretty. They have the muscles of a man. And our society has gone to such a gender dysphoria that we've actually said it's okay because they feel like it to allow those muscles to compete against the, the DNA of a woman and have male DNA compete against female DNA. And dominate them. Let me tell you what. The feminine movement has done more to put women back in bondage than anything that was done by masculinity. The feminine movement says let them do what they want to do. This liberal movement, this idea that you can just do whatever you want, you can be whatever gender you want, has actually taken women and said you no longer are able to compete. We're going to dominate you even at your own athletics. You no longer have a place to compete. We're going to come in and shut you down. That's what it's done to them. So, look, I get it. Most, when, when you look at this subject, most women are actually supportive of it. And what they're doing is they're creating a world where their daughters are always going to be made to feel like second-class citizens. Where they're always dominated. They're never safe. They can't go in the bathroom safe. They can't play sports safe. They have to always worry about being dominated by somebody who's born DNA different. I'm not judging what's in your heart. Please understand. I am saying that your DNA is definitive on what you're able to do. Right? They're talking about allowing men to fight in the UFC, uh, you know, that say that they're like, they're women, and fight the women. Fight the women. I feel like a woman. Your arm is the arm of a man. It is the DNA of a man. And somebody's going to die. That's what's going to happen. We have to realize that we've allowed our society to go off some kind of cliff, man. We've taken baby steps to where everything becomes permissible. Let me just be real clear here on what is and what isn't. If you are an atheist, if you're watching this, you need to understand something. Don't tell me that this subject is just fluid with humans and there is no evil or good in the world and there is no God. Here's the reality. If there is no God... I don't see any of you trying to prosecute lions for rape. Any, any atheists? But man, if you ask an atheist, is it okay? You know, some atheist says, well, I don't believe in God. Can I rape you? Look at me be real. Can I rape you? No. Well, would you consider that evil? Would you want me punished if, that, if I did that to you? Is there anyone in here that's like, that's fine. I'm, I'm an atheist, so it's nature. Just be a lion. Right? Every one of you would want me punished regardless of your thought process on God. But you don't, you don't call for a lion to be caged or jailed or put in jail for procreating how he wants to, right? In fact, if another male lion comes up to the pride, that other lion may kill him to make sure that his procreation is no longer threatened, right? Do we lock him up for murder? Or is there a distinct difference between how we treat animals and we treat humans, regardless of faith? 
there is a distinct difference in our DNA. What's in our spirits understands the difference. We were created differently, which means we are not created as animals that just run around and procreate with whoever we want. God created us differently. There is a moral law that is built into our nature that is independent of animals. It's there. And our society lives and dies by it. Philippians 4.8 says this. I'm going to close real soon. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, why is this so important? Because here's the good news. Maybe some of you have been in that situation where, where porn has been a problem or, or sexual addiction have been a problem. Or that's been where you are. And those neural pathways are already made. And you can't seem to break it. Here's the good news. Those neural pathways can be rewritten. As long as you abstain from that situation long enough and fill your brain with new information, it will overwrite those neural pathways. There's hope. It's not quick. Those ones are, are dedicated. It takes some time. But they, they'll be overwritten as long as you stay away from it. Even in the shakes. Okay? It can be replaced with something else. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Rewrite your neural pathways. Let me say it this way renew your mind. Renew your mind. See, we used to think, maybe you guys grew up in the time when science thought that your brain was settled. Once it matured, it was done growing. If you lost brain cells, they didn't regrow. That's what they used to think. The brain is perpetually growing. Now they understand that the brain is constantly changing, constantly making new neural connections. It never stops renewing. So you can renew it the right way or you can renew it towards destruction. The good thing is the moment you stop and go the other way, you start renewing your mind. So a key to renewing your mind is simply to turn around and change the way you think. Repent means to turn and change your thought. It's a deeper word than that, but the simple term is to change your thought. Change the way you think. Do a 180, and you will start to create neural pathways. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When you renew your mind, when you change the pattern of this world, the neural pathways of this world, you create new patterns and you renew your mind. Does it sound like God might have known something a little bit about something, something? Right? So these nations, the Romans, the Greeks, the Sumerians, the Moorish, the Babylon, the Anglo-Saxons, and the 80 other smaller civilizations that he studied, all had a renewing of their mind towards monogamy. And their nations flourished. Let me read this to you in Romans 1, 22. Now, Rome was a nation on the, on the crumble, okay? Now, it lasted a couple hundred more years. But listen to, what, listen to what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 1, starting with verse 22. It says this, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So they started to worship idols. What I'm about to read to you, listen, because it's a recipe for what I'm talking about. So the beginning of this transition happens with idol worship. Okay? 
So I want, we're going to analyze this for our nation, and I'm going to close. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart and sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Idol worship led to sexual impurity. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So now they've allowed lust to take over. They've given in to the lust, and now their minds have created new, depraved neural pathways. He gave them over to their depraved mind. Their minds have now transitioned so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. So now we're going beyond what started as just sexual desire. Idol worship led to sexual desire. Now he's saying, now they're starting to move into every depravity. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Now I've invented, every one of us have played the, if I was going to kill you, how would I get away with it, right? Right? They asked that on the internet. One guy responded, like, how would you get away with it? He goes, I've thought about this a lot since I was a kid. And what I would do is I would murder them and then take them to a temporary spot. Then I would call the police and say that I think the body is here. Then the police and, the, and them would come out with the dogs and they would dig and they would search the spot where supposedly the body was. Finding nothing, they would finally leave. And all of that fresh dirt, I would take the body and bury it where they had searched. And no one would be suspicious because that dirt had already been turned up and no one would ever come looking there again. And someone said, it's very alarming that you've been thinking about this for many years. (laughs) Right? So they invented way. So there comes a point where you've done all the greed that's inventable and now all of your social energy, instead of inventing ways to get to Mars, instead of inventing ways to improve our health, instead of inventing ways to destroy cancer and disease, we're inventing ways to do evil. Right? That's why the porn industry is so popular. They just keep inventing new things. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those practices to each other. And they practice them. Does that sound like any society you've been around lately? Does that sound like, so we have idol worship who then gives themselves over to to sexual desire and then that starts the chain reaction of a deprived mind that can only think about flesh, 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 gratify, 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 gratify. And everything else becomes secondary. You no longer have a desire to protect your family, to care for your family, to love your children. You only want to gratify that. You ask any man that got caught up in that, they will tell you. They would sit alone, isolated. They didn't care about their wife. They didn't care about the kids. They just became robots to this, to sexual sin. So where did the idol worship come from? Man, guys, I'm telling you what, truth, we have the greatest nation on earth. And we have the greatest system of government on earth. 
but everything corrupted is destructive. Capitalism is fantastic until we've made the dollar our idol. And as a society, we made the industrious error, business, growth, our idol. And rich men became our idol. And celebrities became our idol. And we started to idolize money, success, fame. Those became idols that we worshipped. And when that happened, we wanted to be like them. We wanted to have what they have. And so we gave ourselves over to this idea of sexual revolution. We didn't idolize preachers anymore. We didn't idolize great men of God or fathers. We started to idolize rich and famous. Rich and famous, right? Some of the most, some of the most watched shows on earth are the ones about rich, famous, deprived, depraved people, excuse me, that do horrible things, right? We're obsessed with absurd. And that's crazy. So we've created this pattern that Paul warned Rome about, and Rome still fell into it. So we return to sexual purity. Here's the thing. Unwin wrote all this stuff and said, if you do this within three generations, your nation would die. And his final conclusion was this. Luckily, our nation is not there. He wrote that in 1934, before the sexual re revolution of the United States. Before the sexual revolution of the United States. So this wasn't him trying to attack morality in the United States. This was when the nation was still a moral nation who believed in marriage. And he said, luckily, we haven't gone that far yet. Little did he know how prophetic his declarations would be that our nation's in trouble. So here's the, the clue. As long as we are fighting our own sexual purity, then we will never be able to cultivate sexual purity in our nation. As long as we are still battling it in our own selves. If that's the case, then we will see the decline of our nation. But understanding this fundamental truth, instead of me just getting up and going, God said it, and you should just stop doing it. I'm giving you something that's like, wow. This is something valuable that God, God put it in his words. Now, I want you to understand this. What I'm releasing today is just a small nugget of a greater revelation that God has given me on, we have kingdom theology. Okay, we have son and daughter theology where I tell you you're a son and a daughter of God and you have access to God as a father. But then there's a greater theology past that. There's a greater level of intimacy that you go beyond son and daughter. And that's bridal theology. When we come together as the bride of Christ, as the betrothed of Christ, and this is a richer understanding. So to understand how, how awful the uh, stepping outside of that betrothal really is, that's why God has a covenant that he's made with us. And it is not loose. It is not little. It is not flippy floppy. It's not wishy-washy. It's not some light thing that he said, oh, well, you know, I mean, if you fail, just come back to me. That's not what he did. He's saying, look, there is a deep revelation of what one means, of what coming together as one really means. And if you understood it, then you would come together and understand that in that relationship, in that oneness with me, there's power and authority you've never imagined. That's when the kingdom of God will come down, rest in your life, and move through you. You will no longer be subject to the laws of this world when you join with me in one. Instead of coming as a son saying, I represent dad, you now come to me as one. And saying, I am dad. I'm with dad. He's in me. He's up. I'm in him. The father is in me and I am in the father. Jesus said we're one. 
And coming together with Christ gives us a new authority that's never been unlocked, but it comes with this union. It comes with the bridal theology. It comes with this joining. And anything that separates that is distracting and destroying. The enemy has attacked marriage because it's the way he takes down nations. It's the way he takes down nations. He gets them to give themselves over to idols, and then he attacks sexual purity. And once he has that, he's got them. It's a two-stage attack. Everything else is the, is the fallout from it. And when we understand that, I think it gives us a new revelation, I hope. This morning I'm going, wow, this is important. So young people, when your friends make fun of you for, for standing up and saying, nope, mm-mm, I ain't doing it, I ain't doing it. I'm trying to keep your nation intact. They don't understand this. They've been sold a lie and a bill of goods that says gratify your flesh, there's no repercussions from it. But you ask, I, t- I promise you, get around anybody that's gratified that flesh long enough and they will tell you the destruction they've reaped on their own life. I, I have never heard a story where it's like, I gave into my flesh, I started chasing that, and I feel wonderful. For a little bit, the Word of God says sin is fun for a season. And anybody that's been in a season of uh, sin will tell you it was fun. It was fun for a minute. And then the guilt, the shame, the destruction, the pain, the suffering, the consequences all kicked in. And I paid for it. Anybody in here could tell you that. So understand that this is God's Word and He's not wrong. And he set a standard for us to allow us, what did he say in the very beginning? The first command was this, and I'm closing right now. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And the key was to do it within the confines of a monogamous relationship where we come together and then we are fruitful because in that we are able to grow together. Me and Rachel have dreams and goals and things we want to accomplish together, right? We don't just stare at each other all day right? You're so pretty. You're so pretty. No, you're so pretty. Okay? There's a moment where that fades off. Do you know why that fades off? So many relationships end when that fades off. So many relationships go, I just don't feel the butterflies like I used to. That's called a covenant where God is now shifting your focus from staring at each other long enough to get in covenant to saying, now let's go do something together and build the world. Let's go take on the world together. When you change your focus from just each other to we're doing this together. Just each other to we're doing this together. The butterfly was there to connect you. And now you're supposed to go together. Stop giving in to you got to have that ooey gooey feeling in order to have a partnership. Look, there's got to be romance. There's got to be love. There's got to be those things. But it shifts. There is a moment where your energy shifts from capturing them to doing life together with them to making something happen and accomplishing something together. Now, hopefully you always have moments where you keep capturing each other, where you keep loving on each other. Okay, you need those. But that can't be your sole focus. God has things for you to do to be fruitful over your life. His intention, that word multiply, wasn't meant to say, now go make more babies, and that's all the human race is about. Your moms, let me tell you this right now. Your sole purpose in life is not to keep the human race going again. You were not made to breed, and that's it. My purpose is to have another child so that the human race doesn't die. That's not what God has for you. That is a part of what God has for us. But it is not your, your, your 
purpose. Your purpose is to do something great and leave a legacy for your children. To build something better for your kids. Even the atheists realize that. We need to leave the world a better place for our children, right? Who argues that? It's instinctively inside of us. The lion doesn't say, I need to leave the world a better place for my children. The lion will kill his children if he thinks they're a threat. Everything in us screams there's a moral code and a compass in our life, and we have to follow it. Is this revelation? I mean, is it revelation to you guys? Like, whoa, I read this, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. So the key to building a kingdom, and here it is right here, the key to building a kingdom starts with us having a moral compass that establishes a foundation that allows a kingdom to grow. But if all we're trying to do is win battles and lose battles and win battles and lose battles, all we'll ever be is warmongering. But in order to build something, we have to get a foundation that says these are the core principles that give us a foundation. So returning to purity, making sure that that is a goal of your life, making sure that that is a function of your life, and making sure you're teaching the next generation that establishes us the, avail the availability of heaven on earth to grow something that can't be taken away. Amen?